Howdy, everybody, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And today we have Miles Arbor back on the podcast for the third time. True to fashion, Miles wanted to introduce himself, so let me just get the housekeeping out of the way, and then we can kick it over to Miles Arbor and I for our conversation. First off, I wanted to thank our newest patron. Only one this week. Slow week for the patrons. This whole show is made possible by our newest patron, David George. Thank you so much, David, for stepping up to be a sustaining member of the podcast. And like I did last week, I wanted to go back in the archives and see who was our second longest supporting patron. We have in second place, Paul Drees. And... In third place, our guest today, Miles Arbor. Miles Arbor has been a patron of the Bikes for Death podcast all the way since April 11, 2019. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, appreciate all the support from patrons. And if you would like to support this show, you can find out how over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Now, please enjoy some quick conversations that I had with Ren Sports and Ruby Coffee Roasters. Okay, everybody, we got Cameron Sanders back on the podcast to talk about forks again. Uh, dude, the Beefcake fork is available for pre-order over on your website right now, and nobody knows this fork better than you. You've really put it through its paces. So what do you want to tell people about the Beefcake? This fork is definitely designed for bikepacking and expedition cycling from ground up. You know, there's a lot of components we fit to go bikepacking, but the Beefcake is a fork that we designed specifically for bikepacking. Everything from beginning to end had a specific purpose that's going out and riding for a really long time. This is a gravel fork. What makes a gravel fork is it's axle to crown. Gravel forks are going to have a lot shorter axle to crown. So in order to keep your gravel bike like a gravel bike, you know, we have to keep that at a certain height. But one of the huge limitations out there for gravel forks is their really small tire clearance. When we put this fork together, we wanted a mid-fat capable gravel bike fork that had lots of mud clearance. After we tested this fork at the factory, you basically, we put it on a shake machine and shake it until it falls apart. We literally strapped it down with more weight than you'd ever carry on a fork and just shook it until it exploded. We not only industry standard tested this fork, but we tested it with loaded gear. Once that was done, we loaded this fork up and did a thousand mile bikepacking trip in Eastern Oregon, testing out this fork, fully loaded. Uh, I had camera gear, Lay had our tent and food set up. She was testing uh, the rack capabilities on this fork, as well as the side blades, because we have a lot of bottle boss mounts all up and down the beefcake fork. The retail price is $500. Bikes or death listeners, your discount code still works on this fork. Pre-order is now open on the website and we start shipping forks next month just in time for winter if you wanted to upgrade to some studded tires on your gravel bike and the first hundred beefcake forks that are sold you get a beefcake beanie which is embroidered with the beefcake logo which if you haven't seen it head over to the website and check it out it's pretty rad 
Awesome, dude. Uh, well stated as always, man. You're good at articulating all those finer points pretty succinctly, I will say. But I want one of those beanies too. They look good. But thanks for coming on the show and we will chat with you again sometime soon, my friend. Awesome. Thanks, Patrick. You have a good one. All right, everybody. We got Jesse back from Ruby Coffee to talk to us. And today, Jesse, I was interested to know where coffee comes from and why it tastes different from different parts of the world. And then maybe some of the coffee offerings that y'all have there at, at Ruby. Yeah, for sure. Coffee comes from a fruit tree which means that it is going to be pretty seasonal. The thing I like to compare it to is apples. So if you go to the grocery store, you'll see seven different varieties of apples from different countries, sometimes Washington, sometimes New Zealand, sometimes you get apples from Michigan. Coffee's kind of the same way. Depending on sort of where the tree is growing, soil that's available in that region, the type of weather that region gets, it affects how the trees are developing, but then there's also just tons of different varieties of coffee. We break down coffee in three major regions. There's Central America, South America, and then East Africa. In those regions, you can kind of expect different overall flavor categories, and then individual coffees from individual countries have more specific flavor profiles. So coffees from Central America are usually pretty balanced, maybe a little bit chocolatey, Coffees from South America tend to have a lot of body and some nice bright fruit flavors. And then coffees from East Africa, we usually expect them to be a little bit brighter, maybe more citrusy. So right now on our menu, we have coffees from Colombia that we think are pretty bright and pretty well-rounded. We've got coffees from El Salvador that we think are pretty chocolatey and really balanced. And then we also have a couple coffees from Ethiopia that we think are pretty sort of fruit forward, citrusy, and maybe even a little bit floral. It almost seems like you need to just kind of go and try some different ones from different regions and just see what you prefer. Yeah, and, and I think especially, too, you can have coffees from El Salvador and then coffees even from Guatemala right next door and find a lot of unique differences, but find that the overall flavor profiles might be similar. So if you like a coffee from Colombia, you might like coffees from Peru. If you like a coffee from Ethiopia, you might like coffees from Kenya. But it's always great just to try a couple of options and see what fits your flavor profile. Do you happen to know how many countries are represented with the coffee lineup that you currently have? Yeah, right now we have coffees from seven different unique countries. Because coffee is seasonal, we'll see that rotate throughout the year too. There's points in time where we might have 12 different coffees on the menu, but it only comes from three countries. There's other points in time where we might have 12 different coffees on our menu from 12 different countries. That's one of the things that's great. If you're looking for something new, all you have to do is wait a couple of weeks and usually there's a new release on our website. I've always been curious about that, so thank you for satisfying my curiosity. Thanks a lot. Uh, paging, paging Miles. Uh, yeah, this is a principal's office. Uh, Miles Arbor, your mommy's here. Your mommy's here, Miles. Please come to the office. Miles, what's going on, dude? Just hanging out in my kitchen in Powell River, British Columbia. Man, it's good to see your face again, my friend. It's always a pleasure to uh, lay my eyes on yours as well. Oh, that's so sweet. Well... It looks like you're going to be back on the podcast for the third time. I'm excited to have you uh, back on. I think that's a record I was thinking about. I think you'll be like the guest with the most appearances. That's, um, yeah, it's an honor. You're doing a good thing with the podcast. And I just like to be consistent. So <laughs> I'll just keep on coming. 
<laughs> well, in the vein of consistency, I remember the first episode we ever did, you were at the beginning, you sang the intro song and we had did the interview and you said, you know, if you're going to do a podcast, you want to see it through. You want to be there all the way from the beginning to the end. So in that vein, why don't you introduce today's episode? All right. Today on the Bikes or Death podcast, we have uh, myself, Miles Arbor in who uh, works with bikepacking.com. He's going to be talking a little bit about a new big 1,000-kilometer gravel route on Vancouver Island that at the time of this recording isn't live yet, but at the time you're listening to it, it might be live. (laughs) And it's going to be big. It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. All right, man, that that was a great intro. Why don't we have you take it away with the intro song? One, a two, a one, two, three, four. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars. Including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Has has anyone ever given you feedback saying that they don't want to hear it anymore? No. The feedback on the song has been just awesome, really. I always get, and I share some of them with you. Just yesterday, the day before, it it was some of my patrons. They went on a bikepacking trip and they did a, a whole video, you know, taking you along the trip, the whole thing. And at the end, they're all driving home in their car and they're listening to the bikes for death podcast and the intro song comes on and all four of them start singing and they're fucking i mean they just they nailed it man it's awesome what was it i said so i sent that to you was that cool oh it was very cool i like how um everyone sings it like in their own tone as well like it's not at, no it's there's no consistency which is great everyone puts their own little spin on it and everyone wants to. Even that guy sent me a message and said that they have like a heavy metal band and so they're wanting to do their own rendition of it or something like that. So, And we've had other people that have taken their spin on it. And what did you think whenever... I actually was curious, like, what did you... Did you have any expectation for it? Did you think I would use it all the time? like, Or do you just kind of just did it for fun? Like, Yeah, I just, I just did it for fun. Emily and I were actually talking about this the other day. How like... It's funny how I just like wrote that to be funny. And then it seems like it's stuck. I'll come out for it with another version soon. I had some, I had some drafts in the work, but my uh, Gitalele has a broken string right now and I haven't had fixed it. I should probably do that. Maybe I'll do that today. I think Bikes or Death should fund the new string. How much does a Gitalele string cost? Like $5? Five quid? What do y'all use there? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly have no idea how much it costs. Probably not a lot, but I feel like if I go into a music store, because there is one here in town, I bet if I go in there with my probably subpar Gitalele, they're going to try and sell me a nicer one. And I'm easily convinced. <laughs> so that's the real holdback. 
You don't want to, it's not the cost of the string that's holding you back. It's your own vulnerability to spend money on a nice, shiny new one. Yeah. Imagine the possibilities with a brand new Gitalele. Well, I really can't. I, I didn't even imagine the possibilities of what was possible with the first one. And look at what you did. You started a worldwide sensation. I mean, people in the UK are fucking singing your song, driving down the road, coming home from a bike packing trip, dude. Is that and where they so, were from, that crew? I think, yeah, it was Wales, maybe. maybe <laughs> That's that. awesome. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's been cool, man. I really appreciate it. It's been such it's been such a fun part of the podcast that was totally on I mean, I never that was a total surprise. I mean, you just did it and like, I'm gonna play a song real quick in the back of my van. <laughs> like, All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, glad glad to play a small part in a oh, in man. The podcast. I think it's becoming a big part. It's like you are synonymous with bikes or death at this point. You can't sever them. <laughs> And no, nobody is wanting it to be severed. So let's just nip that in the bud right now, mister. People want more Miles Arbor, not less Miles Arbor. Me I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm giving them what they want. Let's get into it. So since you are the man at pretty much the center of the bikepacking universe, let's get into some of the goings on in the bikepacking world real quick. Tell us your favorite piece of bikepacking gear favorite piece of gear i'm gonna have to say these these new cnc buckles from Oster. i think that's how you pronounce it manufacturing in uh just south of here in washington what are they they're where are they oh i think i have one right here oh yeah 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 it's a little camlock buckle that's cnc'd so it's crazy beautiful they look like little pieces of candy almost they're so nicely finished, and the CNC machining is so exact. It's just a cam, cam lock buckle, but it's just not plastic. So CNC that of aluminum with a titanium pin. And I was sent a few to check out, and we did a little article on them on bikepacking.com. Really, they just they hold tight. They hold tight, and they're good for any weather. And they're just like it's it's just a fun little conversation piece when I'm when I'm riding and someone's like, oh, what are those? And I'm just like, oh, get ready to your mind to be blown because these buckles are insane. <laughs> I love it. There, I remember the article, and they're both cute and elegant at the same time. They're just super well designed. So take us through just an example, a couple examples of how you would actually use that uh, little cute clip, little cutie. They call it the little cutie. They should call it the little cutie. Because it's uh, fall here in Powell River and it's getting kind of wet, I've been running a rear rack for most of my bikepacking setups, including this recent route scouting mission that I did. So I often lash like a big dry bag, or not a big dry bag, but a dry bag. It's pretty small. On top of the rack for some extra gear, like with my tent and some stuff like that. And normally I would just use voile straps to strap those on, which are also a super handy tool. But the nice thing about these things is that they just like don't, loosen up ever and like they look cool and they're handy if i need to use them for something else because i can just count on these for sure that was my initial thought when i saw those is well okay don't we have volley straps here's and i want to ask you this question the limitation of a volley strap is obviously the length you get 18 inches 25 inches or whatever that seems like you'd attach it to any length you know uh webbing webbed rope that you have right something like that yeah, and they're insanely strong. They're pretty much, yeah, they're they're infinitely adjustable, right? Because you're just looping it through the cam lock buckle, just how a cam buckle works. 
on the inverse of that, there's no uh, limit on the number of holes, right? Like if you need to make it super small, you could do that. Okay, cool. Worst piece of gear, something Whoa. silly or just not good for bike packing. We're all bike packers here, Miles. Don't know if you know. Wait, what? Backpacking? <laughs> I know you're onto motorcycles now, so I just want to. <laughs> Worst piece of gear. I'm just trying to think. You haven't had any gear break or anything? I'll tell you one while while you're thinking. Do you know those big Agnes ultralight camp chairs? Like, you know, I got two of those. And within a year, both of them broke at the leg. Like the aluminum piece literally twisted and it it started to rip open. And I am the, no one's sat in it other than me. I weigh 195 pounds. Like I'm not pushing the 250 limit that these claim and I've treated them well. It was real nice to them. I think they probably make a great tent, but man, I'll tell you what, I don't know about those chairs. I had two of them and it happened to both of them the exact same way. And I'm like, okay, one maybe, but two, eh, that's a hundred percent. I do have two pieces of gear that failed on me um, during this trip. So one was right before the trip, and I had these Smith glasses, and they're my favorite sunglasses because they're photochromic, so they adjust to light conditions, which is pretty nice for bikepacking. But right before my trip, when I was, like, packing my stuff up, I must have, like, sweat on them, and then my sweat stained the whatever kind of film there is on the inside of the glasses to the point, like, it doesn't come off. And... um, you can't, I don't know. Yeah, see, you can see. Those are warranty scratches, but you can see the rest of it. And it's really, it just looks like, it kind of looks like fogging on the glasses and it won't go away. Thankfully, Smith is really good about warranties, coverages, so they're going to hook me up. But um, that was a weird one. The other one. Can I ask a question about those glasses? Because photochromatic is something I've always been interested in. If you're riding from day to night, night to day, whatever, just having one pair of sunglasses. So how well did they actually work from that transition? Because I actually, I bought some of the cheaper ones and the cheaper ones I've had don't work. Um, like the $30, $40 pair, the ones that they say they work. I haven't found any of those that work. These were great. I've been super happy with them. They're kind of like, they're never going to be as clear as like a... Well, that's not true. They're pr- when they're clear, they're like totally clear. They'll never be as dark as like a total, like actual, like shaded sunglass, but they're pretty darn close. And they're, they're what they do for me is I can just leave them on my head all the time. So like, I don't have to take them off. Yeah, I'd like them. The only issue I've found here where it's like pretty humid and wet is that they fog up sometimes pretty easy. Um, that's probably because like the fit is like pretty sporty, so they like, they fit pretty close to my like my skin, like not a lot of for a lot of ventilation. I get that problem here with almost any sunglass. I just it gets so humid. I haven't found any of them that allow for enough ven- ventilation. Yeah, yeah, that's tricky. My other thing that failed was um, a tent pole that I had. The elastic in the inside broke on the first day. Oh. And then I had to tie a little knot. Well, I had to thread because it all fell apart. The tent pole fell apart. And then I had to put all the pieces back together and like hold and like pull tension in the elastic and like pinch it and then put a new piece on and then pull and pinch. It was pretty annoying. (laughs) And then I had to tie a little knot in the elastic and shove it into one of the poles. So it worked. But a lot of these little ultralight poles, pole sets for tents are when you pack them up, 
and I've just kind of noticed it really is that the elastic where it kind of bends when you between the different segments of the poles is like sometimes it's rubbing against sort of like a sharp edge of that pole. And because my poles, it's kind of how it's really because I packed them in a silly spot, but I packed them in a bag that wasn't like a stuff sack. So it was kind of loose in there. So they were bouncing around all day. And I think that created enough vibration where it kind of like cut through one of them. So more of my fault than anyone else, but oh well. Kind of, but I've seen that same, I know what you're talking about where I think it rubs a little bit over time. It's probably a design feature that maybe tent manufacturers want to look into. What I, what's next? What's your favorite bike packing tire? What did you use on the trip and how did it work? Maybe that one. I used um, 700C by 50 mil uh, Maxxis Ramblers. They're just the stock tires that came on the Hudski Doggler that I rode. I've been a huge fan they, and they work fine. They're like standard, like big volume gravel tire. They can hold up to a lot of stuff and like have enough traction for anything that I encountered. I've always been a big fan of WTB Ranger tires for bikepacking. They're just like kind of like a good bet for most conditions. And I just got to mix things up a bit. I just got some Terravail. I just bought some Terravail A-Lines from uh, the bike shop here in town. And they look like they'll be great. They're a 29, I think it's a 29 2.5 inch tire. And they've got like pretty decent little side knobs, but like fairly fast rolling um, center tread for like mountain bikes. And I think I'm going to pair those with like a dynamo wheel set. So I think they'll be fast enough where it'll work well on like a dynamo wheel set. Oh, I'm seeing them now. Yeah, those, those? Those look like a yeah, that looks like a good tire. I hadn't heard of, heard of those A lines before. Yeah, they look pretty neat. It's like eh, it's like eh. a Canadian A line. But here, here in Powell River, because it's so wet and chunky, and there's roots and mud and rocks, I've been running like super chunky, like almost like downhill tires, like on my hardtail for sure, and a lot of the other bikes, just because you need the traction, like you can't. You need like a super soft compound of rubber. So you have a lot of grip, which isn't, that's not good for bike packing at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually, whenever you said you were running that 50 uh, C tire or uh, is that what you said you had? 50 mil. Rambler. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, the Rambler. Yeah. I was thinking that seemed like a little bit under biking for what I see you riding, but I guess you, you have some like really nice crushed granite roads, but like this route that you did, this thousand mile, thousand kilometer route, it was pr some pretty gnarly sections, right? I, there were some, there were some short sections that were like pretty chunky and like some, I don't know, like golf ball to fist sized rocks that were like little short sections, but that wasn't the majority of the route. The majority of the route is gravel roads. So like pretty well-maintained gravel roads with, um, I don't know, pea-sized rocks. Pea-sized gravel. Okay. Yeah. So 50 mil uh, for me was like kind of the sweet spot. You could, you had totally enough traction to do any of the climbs as long as your gearing was right and you could bomb down steep descents without like being too scared that you were going to wipe out. <laughs> Perfect. What are the best riding shorts that don't look like riding shorts? I need a new pair. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> I tore mine. <laughs> I really like my Chrome five pocket shorts. Let's see here. We just published, well, we didn't just publish, but a while ago we published a, uh, 
a roundup of shorts, or maybe that was last summer. We just published the women's one, Madrona, Madrona five pocket short. I see them here, Chrome. Yep. So those ones, those are the ones I wear on and off the bike most days, just because they're like a shorter inseam, so they're a little bit more comfortable, show off my legs a little bit, and um, they're not a technical feeling fabric. <laughs> they're not a technical feeling fabric, so they're nice and comfortable against the skin. And they don't look they don't look like bike shorts at all. I'm trying to think of what other shorts I have. I like those. I'll just get those. That's fine. Okay. One answer. <laughs> Easy. It wasn't a trick question. Uh now here, here is a question. I think you are undisputedly the uh world's bikepacking poop champion. You probably have the most dialed poop system out of anyone I would expect. So take us through your poop system. Yeah. So this trip, this is a good, actually a good example on this trip. I had um, a very sophisticated right now in my Crohn's kind of a journey. None of the medication is really working. So I'm onto a new medication. So I was in a weird kind of transition area where I wasn't really on any medication during this trip. So I knew I needed to have everything like dialed. So I had in my front handlebar bag, which was like a big uh, bags by bird piccolo. So we just did a review of that. But it's big, like long flat style bag, well, short flat style bag. Actually, you just stuff things to the top. And in there, I had a Ziploc with toilet paper and baby wipes. And then in my frame bag, in the non-drive side, like map pocket, the little slim pocket, I had another Ziploc with toilet paper and baby wipes. Because, and do you know what? At some points during the day, I even had toilet paper in my hip pack as well. So I had a few different options. And I think that, that was, that's important to me because sometimes when I have to go to the washroom, I have kind of like 30 seconds to like figure out my stuff, dig a little hole somewhere if I'm not near a toilet and like make something happen. So I also had my trowel in that little side pocket on my frame bag as well. And that was my system. What kind of trowel do you use? Do you have a special trowel that you find will dig the fastest hole? I have one of those little lightweight aluminum, I think Widefoot makes them or maybe Widefoot sells them. There's a few different companies. I think one company makes them. I'm not too sure, um, but I know Widefoot sells a variation of them. A little aluminum one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty lightweight. Seems to work. Seems to work well. I have a titanium one. That obviously is super, yeah. Uh, Matt Mason sent it to me as like a gift and uh, it's really lightweight. But if you're in Rocky area, you're going to be struggling. I think that aluminum one you have is more more durable. So we just had, uh, I don't know if you had listened to the Quinn Brett episode yet, but it just came out like a couple, yeah, I guess like two days ago. But she's a paraplegic, paralyzed from the waist down. And she cannot feel if she needs to go to the bathroom. She also lost her taste of uh, sense of smell and she can't smell if she's like shit herself. So she was, do you know who I'm talking about? She's the girl who just completed the tour divide on the, uh, the trike, an adaptive hand bike. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've heard of her. Okay, cool, cool. Well, yeah. So she told us a pretty good poop story. You got any good uh, bike packing poop stories you want to lay on us? <laughs> um, to, 
Um, Specifically shitting yourself poop stories. Okay. Well, then it's actually not bikepacking. It's a sea. I was kayaking, but it's close enough. It's pretty similar stuff. I was on a kayak trip in Ontario. When was this? This would have been a while ago, multiple years ago, <laughs> back when I was in college. So just before the trip, we, we were kind of like, we would spend time at this, uh, at this like rafting place where we did a lot of our, it was like a guide training program. So we like spend a lot of time at this, um, this tour facility where we did a lot of our training for whitewater and, uh, and kayaking and stuff. And then, uh, we're on this kayak trip and it was nine days, I believe in total about maybe day three or day four, I started feeling like a little weird in my stomach. And I was like, Oh, it's probably like a Crohn's related thing. Cause this was pretty early on in my Crohn's days. And then, so I was like, okay, just Crohn's, I guess. And then like, I started having to go to the washroom a fair amount <laughs> throughout the day. And I was like, I don't know if this is Crohn's. And then it started getting to the point where I was, I had explosive diarrhea to the point that it was, it was shooting no, no joke, like, like feet away from my body. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran out of toilet paper in like 24 hours. Not many, like there were some other people with toilet paper, but like no one really wanted to give it up because it's kind of important. It's a very rocky, it's a rocky area too, like near, uh, near Georgian Bay. So it was like, it was pretty rough. And, um, and then at one point I was just like, well, I'm not ever going to be able to like find enough toilet paper to like clean up. So I just started stripping down naked every time I went to the washroom and jumping into whatever body of water was nearby. It was just so awful. I was so dehydrated. And it turned out I caught um, cryptosporidium from not actually from the trip, but from back like where we were doing our prep for the trip. And a few other people caught it too, but I don't think anyone had it. Maybe one other person had it during that trip, but, um, yeah, a few of those actually ended up going to like the hospital and asking what was going on because we were hurting. It was bad. It was bad. Don't drink unpurified water or weird, weird river water if you can avoid it. Is that what caused? I, I haven't heard. It's crypto what? Cryptosporidium. It's like a, I think people call it beaver fever and stuff. It's just a, it's just like a, a nasty in the water that makes you super sick. Yeah, sounds terrible. That's I've never been in one of those situations, but it's kind of one of your fears is that you're in the backcountry and you get dehydrated, you know, food poisoning. I think food poisoning first that leads to de de dehydration is the real concern. I mean, that's that's you're fighting that, you know, on top of just gross and dealing with the fact that you ran out of fucking toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. And then it and then it becomes about hygiene too, because then yeah. You're you're now like especially, well, especially if you're on a bike ride, man, and you're sitting yeah. on it. I mean, if you're kind of just sitting still in a kayak, I don't think quite as, you know, you know, but if you're moving and you're opening up sores on your ass and you got shit everywhere, I can't imagine that's good. <laughs> no, it's definitely not, guys. I don't think it's recommended. <laughs> <laughs> not recommended. Man, this has been a good cautionary tale. I want to talk about your um, your new fun project, your uh, cargo bike. Is it an extra cycle, I think? Yeah, the extra cycle edge runner. 
I want a cargo bike so bad. So tell me, tell me what you got going on. When I saw yours, I was kind of jealous. So a few weeks ago, we we saw a Facebook Marketplace ad for some bikes for sale, and it was clearly like a backyard junk pile of bikes. Like all of them were rusty. None of them are really in good condition, but uh, one of the bikes in that little lineup was the uh, extra cycle edge runner cargo bike. When we bought it, it had a front wheel handlebars. So like it had a headset and stem and everything in there too. No crank, no rear wheel. It had the bags, the cargo bags, which is pretty important. And it had the top cargo platform as well. So this is like a long tail cargo bike has a 26 inch wheel in the front disc brakes, which is pretty sweet. And, uh, it runs the 20 inch wheel in the back to keep the load super low to the ground, pulled them down to 75 bucks. So bought the frame for 75 bucks, which is pretty sweet. And then I cleaned it up and it sat around in my little shed for a week or two. And then when I got back from this route scouting trip, just and I at the bike shop went down to the bike shop one night. And using pretty much all parts, like old parts from around the bike shop. I think I had to buy, I had to buy a chain ring. What else did I have to buy? A chain ring, two chains, because it's such a long wheelbase. You need two chains. Oh, cool. Maybe brake pads. I think brake pads. And then the rest of it was just um, parts from his parts bin collection. And it's rolling and it's beautiful. So how much do you got in it so far? Well, I have some parts at my house too. So like really my own money that I put into it, it's like around a hundred bucks. But I, I, I ended up putting on, uh, we didn't have a shifter. So then we, I put on this Archer D1X wireless shifting kit. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so it has wireless <laughs> shifting, which actually kind of makes sense for a cargo bike because the trailer cable and housing has to be so long. And then you have to have a weird cable to reach that far. So yeah, I have, I have that. And I put like a basket in a front rack that I had on it that I had already. And I put, installed that. Came with a bell, so I didn't need a bell, which was nice. <laughs> I love it, man. I really, uh, it's, I, I'm so jealous. I mean, it's one thing because most people that have a cargo bike spent like a few thousand dollars on them. But I'm jealous of the fact that you found that for $75. You got like 200 bucks into it or whatever. It's sick, man. <laughs> It's pretty fun to ride. I thought it was going to be, I didn't really know what to expect because I've never ridden a bike like that, but it's great. It's uh rips around. I've been taking on like some little gravel paths and trails and I haven't picked up anything big with it yet, but I wanted, I'm going to start doing, the idea is to start doing like some grocery shopping to try and lessen the amount of time we're driving our cargo, cargo van around. Just drive the cargo bike instead. I w that's why I want one is mostly for practical reasons. They are, I have a buddy up in Idaho, Ash, shout out Ash. Hey buddy. He was texting me this morning. He well, actually, he's in New York now, but whenever I rode his, when I rode his cargo bike, we were up in Idaho and he let me take his big dummy, you know, out for a ride. I, it was cold. Uh, I didn't like how cold it was because I, I flew in or I drove in from Texas and it was freezing and windy and nasty. And I was like, I'm not ready for this. But the bike was fun. But the sucky part is just that they're so expensive. I haven't been able to find one I could afford. But it'd be so cool to be able to go grocery shopping or whatever, pick up a couch. I think you should pick up a couch. Just even if you see one on the side of the road, just put it on and take it around the block and put it back. 
my my friend uh, my friend Nathan here who just moved to town. We're planning to do like yeah, exactly that. Like ride around and just like find big things to put onto it and take some photos because uh, yeah, it's pretty. It's they're pretty useful. I think it's I think it's rated for like four hundred pounds. The uh, the back of it. Wow. I'm pretty sure it's 400 pounds, which is seems crazy to me. Yeah. Although yeah, maybe I, not this one because it's all rusty and dented. <laughs> <laughs> well, eh, there's only one way to find out. Yeah, I'll, I'll find a 400 pound couch. <laughs> but if you if you have a bike like that, uh, I can't imagine that you're not tempted to just see what it can do. I would. I'd be throwing all kinds of things on there. Yeah, I'm going to go bike packing with it for sure at some point. Yeah, you take everything with you. Take a Dutch oven stove. Take your ukulele. Uh, your gitalele. Sorry, I could. Um, I could take a couple of friends on there if they just don't want to ride bikes. <laughs> yeah, just take anybody. <laughs> oh man, did you see any of the uh, comments about uh, y'all? Uh, Bikepacking.com has been doing a bunch of tall biking lately, which is, I think, rad. Uh, I've been wanting to have the Zynga brothers on the show for a long time. They're, they're just fucking awesome. I mean, anybody who doesn't know the Zynga brothers needs to look them up cause they're all about, um, their whole ethos and their whole like thing is about having fun and art and bikes and they kind of combine all of them and they do a lot of really cool stuff in a, in a very unique way. But did you happen to see any of the uh, the comments, some of the hate on uh, the tall bike hate? No, I, no, I didn't. No, I just saw some on because, I, like I said, I was interested in those, so I was kind of reading some of the comments and uh, people like, but why? <laughs> you know, and then there was these discussions like, well, uh, they can carry more gear and all this stuff, and I'm just like, no, it's just it's fun, man. It's just it's fun, like why can't bikes just be fun? Like, why can't you just take a cargo bike, bike packing in a ridiculous manner to be ridiculous and fun? You know, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. I totally agree with you. It's just like, yeah, people, yeah, are always like whining over people's bike choices and stuff. And it's like, who cares? (laughs) That's exactly what it's like. Who fucking cares? (laughs) It's so weird that people have opinions on what other people and like they're mad. They're like, why, why would you do that? Why? Like, why does it matter? Anyway, you ride your cargo bike, miles, (laughs) you do it any way you want. Okay. Kind of in that vein though, does this trip represent, you know, the type of riding you like to do the places that you want to see the, you know, distances you want to go in a day, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, doggy? I hear you, bro. I don't think it does represent totally like what I'm most interested in. What I'm most interested in is like single track, heavy, big backcountry views. So like Colorado trail type stuff, South Chilcotin's in British Columbia kind of stuff. I love getting up on, on top of big mountains and like just where you can see huge valleys below you is um, what I'm most interested in. Me Um, too, bro. In Texas, that's all I do. Big mountains, (laughs) just epic scenery, valleys below. Yeah. You're speaking my language now. You you know what I'm talking about. Um, Oh, I know. (laughs) um, 
Yeah. And it, I love riding on a mountain bike. Like I love just like even like a hardtail mountain bike with big plus size tires and like not loaded up super heavily if I can avoid it. And just having like fun, playful bike with epic, uh, epic single track terrain. But yeah. I still like the other, the other, um, facets of bike packing. Yeah. So I I'll, I'll go out on a big gravel ride for sure. And this a thousand kilometer route that we're going to talk about shortly. It's uh, it was all like you're sitting in the bike the entire time, like in your saddle pedaling away and, um, you don't need a dropper post or any front suspension really, but still beautiful. I also, I guess like an aspect that like, relates to any kind of route. I love going into these like smaller towns and like talking with locals as well. I could like just have that experience and I would just be totally satisfied. Like I love rolling into a town just being like, Hey, just like striking up a conversation with, I don't know, the post office employee or like someone at the general store. And then usually they just have a story to tell you. And then it, it doesn't become about me and my bike trip at all. Like usually that doesn't that's not what dominates the conversation at all. It's these, uh, these locals that are just, just haven't shared their story with anybody because they haven't had the chance to really. That's interesting. You should uh, start a podcast where you interview them. Just let all these people uh, tell their stories. It would be like uh, kind of stories from bikepacking, but not about bikepacking. It's about like the people that you meet or you can just keep it to yourself and it can be a nice thing that you like to enjoy on your trips. But yeah, it's cute. I like it. It's a good answer. Going back to uh, your story, it's very relatable to me. I I genuinely love people and I love interacting with uh, people, especially in small towns. My route that I'm doing, I intentionally avoided any big major city centers. I tried the smallest little communities possible. And, you know, like there's one little gas uh, grocery store, Van's Grocery. You got to go see Van. And, you know, I went in there and like talked to the lady behind the counter and told her about this bike race that would be coming through. And, you know, she thought it was motorcycles. And we, we just talked, you know, about, you know, that place had been there over 100 years or something like that. And, uh, it's fun just to have those little interactions, you know, and peek into the lives of uh, other people a little bit. Totally. And I think um, I think while bikepacking is like gaining popularity in sort of like the cycling world and like outdoor enthusiasts are like learning about it, it's still like very unknown in like everyone else's lives. Like you can't expect to roll into these towns and people to know what you're doing. So I think it's always, and I love, I love the point where like you mentioned it, where like someone's like, oh, so you're on like motorbikes or like, oh, so you're like on the paved roads the entire time or like, and you're like, oh, just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> you're like nonchalantly like, no, I just, I, you know, the town over there. Mm -hmm. Well, because you'll say I rode from the town over there. They're like, oh, so down I-45 or whatever. You're like, no, no, I went through this pass and that pass and over that mountain and all this. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually the route that I did. It's a good example of that because at one point you have to take a water taxi, like a boat through the ocean. And so you say like, oh, I just like, I came from Tassus, the town of Tassus. And they're like, oh, like, so like, wh what? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's cool. Oh, uh, when I, when I went to 
so this this race um, and route and everything. Um, by the way, I meant to tell you or email you, but I'm wanting to publish once it's done. The, the route's done, but once everybody rides it and we get all the feedback and hopefully even make it a little bit better, or they, you know, maybe they just say it's terrible, or maybe they just say it's really good. But we get some feedback, and then I'd like to publish it because I think like the 275 mile showcasing the best of east texas it's really really good you know but so the whole thing starts and finishes at the bullet grill where we ate whenever you came down remember i'm i got to know the owner and he's actually a really cool guy he always wanted to be a chef he had a whole nother career and then you know kind of retired and this is like his dream is to open up like a bar and grill in the middle of the woods i'm like cool that's your thing you know and uh, but he's, he's been super helpful. But anyway, like I remember, uh, the first time I went to him, I mean, I had to come with like pictures and stuff. It's like, you know, here's a map, here's some pictures. This is what we're thinking. And, you know, you have to help like wrap their mind around it before you can actually get them to actually have the conversation. You know, I can't just walk in and be like, Hey, we want to host a bikepacking event and this is going to be the main hub. And he'd be like, Oh yeah, that's cool. We do that all the time. <laughs> No, no, that's a good point. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, you have to, uh, you have to tread lightly with this kind of stuff. And like to some people it might sound like rambunctious or like, it's going to be a bunch of people that are like littering and shitting all over the place. But, um, well, there's probably some people out there doing that, but the most, most of us are pretty, uh, well-mannered. I think by and large, uh, you're right. And that's another thing that, um, we talked about as well, actually was just, like the types of people that do this kind of stuff. It sounds crazy, but, um, you know, in our world, it's not that crazy and it's not, it's just riding your bike every day. You know, it's much simpler than what most people's lives, certainly simpler than what my daily life is. My daily life is a, it's crazy. Let's talk about your route, man. Let's, uh, let's do it. Are you ready? You're ready. We don't know what we're going to call it. We don't have a name. It's probably going to come out soon as to the release of this podcast it may be out now it may may be out soon yeah why don't you just first like give us the stats yeah so i'll give you some stats let me just open it up here actually so i can have just pull it right from here right now the route is just over a thousand kilometers it's located on like the north end of vancouver island in british columbia which is kind of like north of um courtney comox if anyone uh for the British Columbia folk that know where that is. It's uh, about 90% gravel, maybe closer to 85% gravel. And then the rest is a little bit of pavement, a very small portion of highway riding on the side of a nice highway. And there's a little bit of trails kind of mixed in there, but it's, it's gravel roads on forest service roads primarily. How do you get the percentages of gravel to pavement? Are you are you keeping track of that as you go along? Are you do it in off satellite view? You know, what's your process there? So in the past, I would just go back over the route on Ride GPS, which is what I used to plan all my routes with on my computer. And I would kind of like highlight sections that I knew. In this case, I would like highlight pavement sections because there was not a lot of it. And then find like a kilometers and then find a percentage. Now, RideGPS just did an update. So they give you a percentage of unpaved, um, which is pretty cool. So it does that automatically right on the root page. 
but it's not like a hundred percent accurate. And in some cases it's like way off. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to say in some cases, only 3% accurate. So. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was actually pretty accurate for this route. This route, I think it was saying 85%. Yeah, that was my that was my joke because for my route it says it's three percent gravel or unpaved or whatever, and not not throwing shade on Rywood GPS. I knew that feature was coming. We talked about it on the podcast before, and um, I think the cool thing about it though is it allows locals to go in and actually mark where the gravel actually is and then it becomes a resource for everybody you know it's simply like open sourcing what's paved what's unpaved and so it's going to be accurate in some places not accurate in others but we can go in and tell the computer what it actually is totally yeah and it's like it's just a step in the right direction to make it a little bit easier when you're It'll planning. Get better like anything exactly yeah and then like in tr- routes where there's like single track and stuff i'll do the same i'll just like kind of highlight or if it's like a shorter route, it's a, it's sometimes a little bit easier just to like give a kind of like a well-educated estimate. That Okay. Well, that's exactly what I do. I just, I highlight and then just change the color of, uh, of that section. And then I just calculate the percentages while I'm going along. I do some of it from satellite view and some of it I do like as I'm going along. So Routes is always a very um, hot topic. Everybody likes to talk about routes. So, in you know, tell us like, do you have or specific to this one? Did you have goals in mind, priorities? Like, what was your approach to even starting a route like this? Yeah, so I'll go like way back because I hadn't really experienced much of like the North Island, so north of uh, Courtney, Comox, or Campbell River area. So. How did I figure it? So really, I've just been like, I started looking at resources for around the island. There's a few people that have, there's a website, um, Backroads, what is it called? Backroads Bike Touring, which is a gentleman that has ridden all over Vancouver Island to the Sunshine Coast and has a lot of the roads marked. And like, so I was looking at that. I was asking people that had ridden up there a bunch. And then there was a, like this overlanding kind of like off-road ATV route that was, published that uses some of those trails up there. So I was using kind of some of their resources and chatting to those, that kind of crew about what they were doing. The cool thing about the North Island is that although there's tons of gravel roads everywhere, like tons of forest service roads, if you're looking to connect communities together in a way that makes sense, it's pretty obvious what loop you're going to do. Like if you, as long as you spend the time, like it took, it takes, still takes a long time. Like it took a bunch of research and then it took me 13 days to go ride it and like dial in everything. But like, there's an obvious loop that you want to do that could be expanded into like a 30 day plus trip if you wanted to. But as it is, it's kind of like the best of the best in terms of you asked, like if there was anything that like certain things that I wanted to like kind of accomplished with the route? Yeah, like why, what, yeah, what's the purpose of the route? You know, what niche is it filling? Like why, why do it, you know? It's a, it's a lot of work. That's the thing that I'm starting to respect a lot more is doing this route is these longer routes are pretty difficult to actually create. That is good, has the resources, you know it goes. Um, so you have to have like a, a pretty good reason for making or putting in all that time. I think it's because the Vancouver Island and the northern half in general is not a lot of people have experienced that by bike. 
So it's like, it's kind of this like sort of, at least in BC, I kind of get the vibe that it's sort of like this mysterious little area that like some people drive up there to go like do big hiking trips. There's a lot of good big hiking trails up there, but there's a lot of smaller towns, especially on the West side of the, uh, the Island that people kind of drive into, but there's not a lot of people like biking around that area. I had no idea what to expect. I knew the route like really well because I, I spent a lot of time planning it out and dialing in everything as much as I could before I got there myself. But I had no idea really like what the landscapes or train was going to be like. And let me tell you, I was blown away. <laughs> By how pretty it is, how hard it is, how remote, like what was blowing you away? It was so gorgeous. The train, you're, I didn't expect there to be so many like big mountains. There was like big granite mountains with like snow still on them and huge lakes like around every corner. And then all of a sudden you're climbing up to views of like the, the ocean and then the Johnstone Strait to the east and like all these kind of like coastal islands and inlets and fjords. It was, it was unreal. Honestly, I don't think I've ever been so excited about gravel riding before. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, the, I wanted to ask you, like, are there any ugly parts of Canada? Because all the pictures you post, everything I see mostly through you and some other uh, cyclists that I follow, it's just, it's stunning. And it has a diversity that is like a robust diversity of everything you could imagine. Yeah, it, there, yeah, packs in a lot, especially, well, especially British Columbia, like, you can be in deserts and stuff in Kelowna and the, like the interior, and then you're in rainforests on the coast and then huge, huge mountain ranges. Yeah. It's super diverse. Like I would, yeah, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't super beautiful and I was very inspired by it. (laughs) I can't imagine living in a place like that and, you know, being who you are and having the capability to hop on your bike and literally just go explore. Um, I can't imagine that ever gets old. No, no, it's always, but there's, I always seem to find a, reasons to leave as well so the world is just uh, too big of a place <laughs> yeah well that's a good point speaking of that i was going to ask you like what is this uh, situation with the border i know it opened for a little while and that i think i heard it closed but i mean not everybody that listens is, is in canada so can people even access this route now or what well u.s residents can come to canada so you're, you guys are allowed to come up here no problem we to go down for me to go into the states it's like a big process where i think i have to get like a pay for a covid test and then when i leave and maybe when i arrive or something and then pay again when i leave it's just i was looking into it actually at one point and it ended up not being worth it it's confusing i don't yeah i don't i have no idea why it's open for you guys but not for us <laughs> yeah that sounds really weird <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It sounds so backwards. Sounds very nice though. And Canadians are just being nice. They're just like, okay, you want in that bad. It's, it's fine. You can come. Yeah. But the situation isn't good. Like COVID cases are on the rise and and, uh, people just, just like everybody. And just like you and I, like we're all very tired of it, but I think it would be a, it's premature for us to think that it's on the way out because it definitely isn't from what I've seen at least. I'm pretty sure it's on the rise. (laughs) (laughs) We're not talking flat earth theory here. I mean, I think it's on the rise. (laughs) Yeah, we're um, 
we're, we have uh, negative COVID test requirements for the for the showdown. So, I mean, you know, I think that's kind of the cool thing now with with everything going on. I think testing should just be more like the norm uh, until COVID is not, you know, is gone or whatever the fuck happens with it. But um, like I saw Mid-South posted today that they're going to do negative COVID tests for theirs. And I mean, it's it's free. It's easy. And so it's like, why not just go get one and make sure you're not going to go to a, an event where there's a hundred people and you're just going to cough on everyone, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I agree. Yeah. There's that. Who let's talk about COVID like a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I came to talk about. What I want to know is again, from a planning aspect. So you talked a little bit about the resources that you use, where you gathered information from, but then what? Now you've got this information, you got to start building it and ride with GPS, campsites. You know, what are you looking for when you're actually building the route and trying to make a good route? So pretty much I start off, I guess, like I kind of like a triage, like what's important. So like first off is like the towns along the route are super important to add in there because I want to know like where there's sort of like some infrastructure. And then I start looking at what's in each of those towns and break it down and start doing making calls and shooting emails out um, to see what's actually open. The, the tricky thing with this route in particular is that a lot of these small towns have kind of like outdated Google and like businesses and stuff and like the hours aren't right. And like sometimes there's just like no grocery store at all, even though there says there's a grocery store. So I was I was got pretty into it and like emailing people and like joining like community Facebook pages and like asking people what's up. That's really smart. Yeah. So I joined, I joined like actually just this morning, I posted in this, um, there's Tassis, which is a very small town on the West coast of Vancouver Island. And uh, that's where you have to catch the boat to go to the next kind of portion of the route. And I'm in like the Tassis community Facebook group, which is like pretty small, but very active. And I've been asking questions in there and everyone's super excited and like just answers my questions right away. That's a great idea. I'd never considered. I mean, even route baiting, like if you want a question about a road or something, yeah, the locals will know. Oh yeah. And I don't know if it's not everywhere in the world's like this, but like in Canada, at least there's like tons of Facebook groups for like communities and buy and sell pages. And like, maybe it's, maybe it's like that everywhere. I think that it's everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's everywhere. So your triage is towns, resupply, obviously, yeah. And then really after that, you're kind of just looking at points of interest. So like the big thing, like I think for a well-designed route, there should be interesting stuff along the way, whether it's like cultural or like historical or even just like nature related. So I started just adding in all the cool things along the way. So points of interest... What about like camping uh, spots? Is that is it all like national forests and so it's open or what? No, so a lot of it is actually privately owned logging land. There's a bunch of big companies on Vancouver Island that looks, but I'm pretty sure they like own it. (laughs) So you can't just necessarily go camping wherever you want. The good thing is that there's tons of BC recreation sites, which are like kind of like government owned like rustic campgrounds that are usually free or like maybe 10 bucks or something along the route. So there's tons of really nice camp spots. You don't really have to wild camp 
unless you really need to in a certain situation. But uh, yeah, there's usually picnic tables and outhouses and they're often on a lake. So like on a summer, if you're riding this route in the summer, you can be swimming pretty much every day for sure, actually, if you wanted to. And then that's pretty much it, really. Towns, points of interest, resupply, camping. What else do you need? I was going to ask you if you uh, scouted, I thought you might've even scouted portions of it on your motorcycle, but it sounds like you did a, uh, this trip that you just did was your scouting of this route. Yeah. So I rode the whole route. I like to do enough research in advance that like, I'm pretty sure, like I'm 95% sure, like what I'm riding is going to be the final route, but you have to get like down there and see it for yourself. Cause some things aren't as good as they look like from your home. And then um, Emily and I actually did a, a road trip in the van up to the North Island a few weeks before I did the trip as well. So we drove all the way up to Port Hardy, which is kind of like in the northern tip of the route. And I took that opportunity to like check around as well to see like what was in the towns and start getting some information then. And then, yeah, and the rest of it was just during my, uh, during my ride, 13 days out there. Were you 95% sure then going into this one that, that it was going to go? Yeah, I was pretty confident with everything. Like I had the boat uh, taxi, the water taxi all planned out already because there was another group actually bike packing out there. So we like joined on their boat ride from Tassus to Zabalis. And then the rest of it, like it follows such, although they're not like well, like super popular roads, like n- not many people are driving on these roads and there's not a whole lot going on them besides like logging once in a while. It's pretty like easy to know that like you can ride them and like where they end up. Like we're not really going down any weird dead end roads or anything. Yeah, I was pretty confident and it worked out pretty well. So talk about that, uh, the boat ferry thing a little bit. Is that like a crux of the trip? Why, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, so although these places aren't going to mean anything to you, they'll mean, they'll mean something to our Canadian listeners. So you leave um, from Comox, Courtney area, which is, I started the route from there because the ferry, you have ferry access from the Sunshine Coast where I am in Powell River. And then you can also get there with public transit from like Victoria and also from the mainland from Vancouver. So it's, this is like, a, it's a pretty good spot to start the route that isn't too far north on the island yet. And then from there, you kind of go north and then head all the way west to the west side of Vancouver Island to this small town of uh, Gold River. And then that's kind of like where the real adventure begins. And when like you start getting super gorgeous views and you head to uh, North Tassus, which is only accessed from Gold River. So once you get to Tassus, if you want to go to Tassus, you have to take a boat or a plane to continue um, without backtracking like a big, big section. So how far is the boat ride? Um, it's not, it's not that far. I think it was, it was 45 minutes or so. Um, I don't know what the distance is, but you, you kind of like leave this big inlet off the West side of Vancouver Island and then go around through another inlet back up to Zabalis. And, um, we saw whales. It was gorgeous. I think they were humpback whales. The cool thing is, is that the towns of Tassus and Zabalis are actually planning a trail to connect them to connect the two, that'll be a multi-use trail. So that, that'll make it so much easier because the boat ride, it kind of, it's kind of expensive if you don't have a big group to split it with. How much is it? So we paid $400 and that was, but we split it eight ways. So it was only 50 bucks a person. 
It's $400 for what? The amount of space you're going to take up? Because it's obviously not for per person. So like, how do they... Um, how they come to that number? Yeah, I don't know. It's probably sounds like they pulled it out of their ass. They're like, you got eight bikes, eight people. Yeah, it's four hundred dollars. Yeah, probably, it's pretty like there's not a lot. There's not a lot going on up there, but kayaking, like kayaking and hiking, is huge. And a lot of these companies will do like shuttles for kayak trips and hiking trips. Like they do this. Like this is like some of their business is just like water taxi service. Um, I got you. So they know what they're in. So they're used to people hopping on with different you know whatever's to get, get get wherever they're going totally yeah so i think just a day in the life yeah the issue right now is that at least for some of the companies i spoke to is that like they don't have a lot of employees it's hard to get people to move there to like be to run these businesses so in our situation the actually owner of the company like drove us in the boat up because he was like looking to hire somebody he just couldn't find anybody which I'm sure is like affected by COVID and everything else that's going on. Yeah. But yeah, there's a big hiring shortage. It seems in the U S too. Yeah. Yeah. Other than the cost, it actually, it sounds kind of fun, you know, to just like break up the trip, just kind of a fun thing to do. You'll get to talk to the guy, you need a sandwich or whatever on the boat trip and just kind of see a whale, oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. It's yeah, it was I honestly it was one of the highlights of the trip for me because the town of Tassis, the grocery store, well as a general store, was like we weren't didn't have much in it, like a few dry goods. They were actually it was interesting. They were waiting for a shipment. Probably I'm I'm not too sure if it's a boat or a truck that comes in there with their goods, probably a truck, but they didn't have their shipment yet. So like they didn't have a lot of stuff in the store. So like that impacted what we could buy because we were catching a boat to leave. And then there's a cute little family-owned restaurant, like right on, the, right at the marina where we were catching the boat. So we we all hung out there and had some lunch and stuff before we caught the boat. And then when we got to Zabalis after the boat ride, the general store there that we thought was better wasn't even open. So like you just have to roll the punches. <laughs> yeah, you do. Well, that's a great segue, Miles. You're so good at this. I, my next question was going to be about how you packed and prepared for, you know, this trip, you'd never done it. Uh, so, I mean, you didn't know how long it was going to take you. You didn't know how long exactly it would get you to resupply points if they would be open. So I'm curious, like what your approach to, to that was, and then kind of, I, I guess in that vein would be like, did anything go wrong and, and what happened? So from like a, like food and resupply standpoint, I kind of like budgeted to carry on well, budget. I just planned to carry like sort of two and a half days of food on me at all times. So I had room left in my handlebar bag and my frame bag and some in my little panniers because I was running um, panniers as well to have like food. So I had like meals and like lunchy snacky things and like a bunch of snacks and breakfasts pre-made for yeah, two and a half days. At the beginning, I probably actually left with close to like three days worth of food. And that's like, yeah. So it just, that kind of made sense. I'm looking at kind of look at the distances and elevation. I was pretty sure we were going to be able to do it in like 10 to a little bit more than 10 days. So, and then looking at like resupply points and stuff, which were definitely like worked into, um, worked into like our schedule. Cause we kind of like wanted to get like, it's just easier if you don't have to carry more foods. So we sort of worked it into the schedule to be like that. And then it ended up being 
we were doing pretty good days and it ended up being that we could have carried less food, but it could, it could have also gone sideways because a lot of the stores in like, especially on the West coast side of things, they're more remote communities. Some of their stores just like closed down for the winter. So we could have easily had to carry like even four plus days worth of food. If you were trying to do this route, like in a month from now, um, if it wasn't, yeah. So but it worked out well for us. We didn't, honestly, we didn't have any issues with resupply besides the kind of the surprise that some of these stores didn't have a whole lot to offer, but I'm not, I'm not picky when I'm like hungry out there. Like I'll eat a, a can of mystery if I need to. <laughs> you do what you gotta yeah, do. I'm okay with chocolate bars and stuff. My riding partner, Peter, he was vegan. So it was a little bit trickier for him, but he you said he was vegan. He was vegan before the trip. Now he's not. <laughs> so it was actually funny because he would always come out of when we had like good resupply points, he would always come out with like fresh vegetables and like hummus and stuff. And I was always, I would come out with like bag of cookies and like Snickers bars. And I'd be like, Oh, you're onto something here, Peter. <laughs> um, yeah. And then in terms of like how, how I packed. You mentioned earlier that you sounded a little bit surprised by the snow. So that also made me wonder, you know, how you packed for different weather that you would encounter. It's another thing that makes the route so tricky is because the weather on Vancouver Island is like all over the place and like pretty hard to predict. It's also the best time to ride the route is in the spring and fall. We rode it in the fall and it gets pretty rainy. Like you can expect a lot of precipitation. So you have to bring a lot of stuff because it can get cold at night. It was probably getting down to around 10 degrees Celsius, which is like not too far above freezing. So I, I carried a lot of stuff. Like I had two rear panniers, two micro panniers that I had with like, I had a puffy and like a pretty like cold weather rated sleeping bag. I brought a full one person tent not a lot of changes of clothing, but like a fair amount of layers, different layers and stuff to keep me warm. I brought full rain gear, so like full waterproof jacket and pants, as well as like vapor barrier socks to keep my feet dry. What specific rain gear do you use? This time around, I was using some seven mesh. It was a seven mesh co-pilot jacket and seven mesh thunder pants, which are like their full waterproof riding pants. And that was a good combination. I could have used a heavier duty rain jacket for sure. That's like they're packable. I think it's a two and a half layer shell. And because it's so, it's still like hot during the days, but like we had days where it was like mild and pouring rain. So if you like, you kind of need vents and stuff and that jacket doesn't have a lot of vents. So, and because it was raining all day long, which is like going to be pretty hard to on any rain jacket. It doesn't matter how good it is. It's like, eventually it's going to get wet. Yeah, waterproof after a period of time isn't waterproof anymore. I don't care. If you're riding eight hours in rain, you're just going to get Yeah, and we had had two days in a row where it was pretty much like that all all day long and like at times pretty heavy. But I was pretty comfortable. Like, yeah, it wasn't too bad. Do you wear wool then? Yeah. My go-to is wool. Yeah, Yeah, I pretty much only wool socks. I I think I had a wool t-shirt and I had some some wool underwear as well, actually. I got the Ridge ones, I think, because of you. Is that what you use? Yeah, I still use those. Yeah, that's what I've been using. Great, great recommendation for undies. They should sponsor us. Actually, for this trip, 
I brought um for the first time in a long time, I wore a chamois. Oh yeah. What you wear? I wore a seven mesh one. They have like a little packable, um, like lightweight chamois. And it, it really there's nothing much to it. It's it's like just a little bit of of comfort. But I knew I was gonna be like sitting for a, like a long time, like not mountain biking where you're getting off your saddle a lot. So I was like, ah, I feel like I should have a little bit of extra something. Um, and I'm happy I did. And I was able to like wash it at night and it would dry out by the morning, which was really, it was quite wonderful. Man, they were looking at sponsoring the show for a little while and uh, you're making me want to, I need to send them an email and just, just touch base. <laughs> <Be> like, hey, <laughs> I want to go see what's up. Uh, I know they made, I know they make some good stuff just based on what I've like read online, but you're making me want to really try They're a good it. company. They're, they're based out of uh, British Columbia. They're su- super in tune with um, indigenous land acknowledgement. And like the, the, the name seven mesh is based off of the indigenous name for the area that it's based out of. Um, and they put their, put their money where their mouth is too. And like have donated a lot of good money. Um, yeah. Um, and they make really good gear. So I'm a, I'm a fan for sure. Yeah, whenever they reached out to me, I started because I uh, didn't know a lot about them. So I started researching them and, and I would I legitimately because that's part of it is like I want to partner with companies that, you know, I actually like and want to tell people about. And, you know, like you just did, it's something you naturally want to share because it's like, oh, they make a good product and it's a good company. You know, that's that's good. That's what you want. You know, do something good with all that money. Make some good chamois for God's yeah, sake. Come on. That's all what the people want. That's all we want. <laughs> and, and, and don't be assholes. Just padded underwear. Uh, let's see. Anything else from, I'm almost getting the sense that, and, and speak to this, but that you might want to pack a little heavy or on this route for people who are going to be going and doing it. Depending on the time of year, it'll depend on like what you take. So, yeah. Yeah. I think um, I think you're totally right about that. Give some people. Well, yeah, I think the question is like, give some like, what is the advice for preparing for this trip for uh, people who are gonna be doing it? I think you just have to prepare. Like, I couldn't imagine going out on this route because it's the, as long as it is, and it's gonna take you. Even if you're doing big 100 kilometer days every day, it's still gonna take you 10 days. So you kind of have to be prepared for like cold nights, hot days, and a lot of rain. there's just really no way around it. You're also kind of have to be prepared for like limited resupply. So like, you're not going to buy any like camp fuel on the way, unless you're using a liquid gas stove, then you might be able to get away. But I don't, I don't believe there might be a few spots in Port Hardy where you can get like compressed canister stoves fuel. But like I carried like three canisters with me just in case. And how many did you go through? Actually, it was quite efficient. My, I was using a little stove that was really surprisingly good. Cause I don't know how full, I never, I just like had a bunch of like half used ones <laughs> and then, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and, it, and I didn't even use one tiny one. So I don't know, but uh, we also had like a few meals out and stuff. Like we were, when we go through towns, we, we take advantage and like we had some meals out for sure. I've wondered if someone will solve that problem of there's no empty indicator, no, no way to know. I mean, there's the water thing, right? Where you put it in water, but you're still, it's like, eh, it's, how long does that last? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, I think there, there's a little gizmo where I think you can like empty one into another. Oh, I didn't know that. 
I'm sure it's online. I've just never Googled it. I, I do what you do. I'll take like a couple with just some in each, each of them because I don't really know. Yeah, like you have to bring a lot of stuff on this route <laughs> is really what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah, and food, uh, how many days worth of food do you think is smart to to pack? You said two and a half days for you, but you, yeah. Yeah, I would say like two to three, two to three days worth of food because you just don't know, you don't quite know what's going to happen. Part of the reason I like this route so much is that like, you can't just look at the route guide and go ride it. Like you can look at the route guide and get pretty much all the information you need, but you're probably going to have to make a few phone calls and like figure out for yourself what's going on. Because I know we rode this route like a week later than when we rode it, which was like the beginning of September guaranteed some of the stores that we saw would be closed now because they said like a kind of like after labor day, they start like closing down in Canada. Um, So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you definitely, and like stuff like you need like a good solid shelter because like if it's raining and there's often nowhere to like seek refuge from the rain, you're probably going to want to bring like a proper tent. And if I was going to do the route again, I would bring a tarp as well just to like set up another barrier from the rain. And would the tarp be for yourself or for your gear or both? Maybe both. I think I would just like, even if, you had it out somewhere accessible where like if it was pouring rain and you're just like somewhere where there's nowhere to hide from the rain, but you just want to stop for a bit and like take a rest. Then you could like set it up during the day and like have a little rest spot or at night you set it up over your tent just to keep your tent dry. How did the route go for you guys? I mean, the first, the first pass through, were there any hiccups along the way or um, what, ha- how'd it go? Yeah, there was not really anything huge. The first kind of, Thing was figuring out the unknown was trying to figure out how to get from like the starting points near the ferry in Comox Courtney area up to like the actual route where it like leads out on gravel roads. So there was like a few little areas that we need to scout. And I, we actually like scouted one option on the way out. And then when I was going back through Peter had to take off to get home, but I ended up scouting a section, another section of the route with these, these two um, people that I met and then like we rode a section together. Um, So that was like kind of like one little unknown area that we figured out pretty quickly in terms of like hiccups. I had no bike problems. Peter had a few flats, easy, easily fixed. He wasn't, wasn't running tubeless. I would recommend tubeless. (laughs) Mm, Like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, but I mean, the the route itself, uh, you didn't come to any trespassing or uh, roads that weren't there or anything like that. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Yeah. For a thousand K, you know, that's, that's a, you did really good homework. Yeah. There's some, yeah, there's some good data on this area. There's like people are out there on dirt bikes and stuff. And they all, they're often there's weird little blogs I found where people are ripping around. There was one section kind of right near the beginning of the route where there was a, it was closed for fire because of high fire or forest fire danger this summer, which means it might open at some point. Um, but we, even with that, we kind of like rerouted it around that section. There was like some logging going on. So there's a few sections where we had to like wait until a logging truck went by so they could like radio in. But the truth of like this route is that you're pretty much on like logging roads the entire time. So you can't quite predict where they're going to be working or what that's going to look like. So, so they might, they might have a road blocked at some point, but in 
like 90% of the chances, like they're going to, they're going to let you through. If you're on a bike, you just have to kind of respect what they're doing. Yeah. I've actually been in that same situation before and they were at first didn't really want to let me through. And I would kind of like showed them on a map. I'm like, bro, if we don't get through, it's like a long way and kind of, you know, and he's like, all right, all right. You know, you got, y'all can go through, but can we talk about the, the rating? I, uh, am I allowed to say that I saw it was rated a seven. So, um, you know, what is the challenging aspect of it? Cause yeah, I mean, forest roads don't sound too bad. Resupply sounds okay. Um, what's the challenging aspect of this route? I think the big challenge is the weather because if you ride this route in the summer and well, if you ride it like, I don't know, in the spring or fall, but you don't get caught in rain, then it could be pretty easy. Like gravel roads, like there's some big climbs, but they're not like abnormally steep and it could be pretty easy, but you could also be, you could start in the sun and then get caught in rain all the way up the North side of the Island. And then now you're in a tricky situation because you're not, it's not too easy to like get out of some of these spots. Cell service is limited. You're pretty much on your own out there unless you're close to one of these smaller towns. So it's the, the weather like plays a huge part and it's, and you can't control it. So it, it could change quickly. So, I mean, a seven is also partly like, it's it's not like a difficulty thing necessarily it's more like you need to be well prepared for being away from services being able to contact somebody and have them come get you you need to be like capable uh of being out there for a couple days on your own yeah totally because like riding these gravel roads is a day ride like doing a little i don't know 70 kilometer loop on these roads would be like a walk in the park but if you're riding the whole route as a thousand kilometers, the weather is going to change while you're out there. So like, you're not going to be able to really look ahead at forecasts. So you kind of have to be prepared for like the worst possible scenario, but people that are prepared are going to have like the trip of the trip of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I want to go. I really, uh, I would love to, I would love to go. Give us an expectation versus reality. Did it exceed your expectation, what was your takeaway now that you're, you're done? It blew away my expectations, to be honest. I oh, thought there was going to be, oh. I didn't think there was going to be as many huge views as there were. Like we were, the route mostly follows these huge wide valleys. Like very, I thought it was going to be tight, steep valleys, but they were very wide. So you had, you had big climbs where you're overlooking the ocean, like I mentioned, and these huge like mountains everywhere. Like there was big granite peaks along most of the route and huge beautiful lakes with like lakeside camping that were just like it was honestly unbelievable i also thought there was going to be way more logging activity i guess we caught oh yeah logging activity is kind of slowing down a little bit when we were riding it but there was definitely like a lot of clear cuts and like that's like pretty sobering to see because it's not um just like untouched land up there there's huge sections where like the trees are gone (laughs) um yeah. which isn't particularly beautiful, but it's also provides us access to these areas. So, so like, can I ask you about that? Um, it's something I was thinking about earlier. Do you have, and you've had, you know, a thousand K to ride through this landscape on roads that were created by timber companies for, you know, timber. So like, do you have a feeling on riding on those roads and then what is it? A juxtaposition? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Um, 
it's why these towns exist, right? It's why this whole area exists as logging. So like all these towns are based off of logging, just like Powell River where I live is like a logging town. So I, I don't have anything like wrong with that. Like I'm not an expert, but I feel like there's better ways to do logging rather than just like clear cutting huge sections. And I don't think logging, I'm definitely not in support of logging old growth forests, which is what the big kind of problem role. It's a huge issue right now in Vancouver Island um, where there's been protests all summer long, as well as in Powell River here and and the like the land use um, part of it like comes down to like um, in, indigenous like land that they're logging, which is like just like no no good. So like yeah, it's crazy. It's it's a weird thing because like we rely on these roads for like really all of the gravel riding in British Columbia is like mostly on logging roads. But like then they're doing like some of these huge companies are obviously like not thinking of the people or the land when it comes to like the actual logging. So I was on a ride in the Sam Houston National Forest the other day and I was like, oh, sweet. They made some new roads and I started riding them. And I was just like, man, they're made these roads just so they come and cut down all these trees. But, you know, it's like if, if it weren't for those roads, you wouldn't be able to access the outdoors in the way you're able to. Right. Like and have those views and have that experience. And so, yeah, I don't know. It just it is what it is. I mean, you're not going to change it, but it's something, I, you know, I think about that paradox of enjoying the the outdoors via uh, timber company roads. Yeah, it's a it's a weird one for sure. But like every every route I've ridden, it pretty much in uh, British Columbia is like exposed to that. So, yeah, I think it's pretty common. I mean, yeah. Anyway, what else? What was I going to ask you? Oh, I had another one. Well, like roots in general, and we talked about this. I think on the last episode are just popping up everywhere, right? I mean, it's insane the number of routes that are being created. Obviously, bikepacking.com is a huge hub and a resource for all of that. You take a damn fine picture. You know, we've we've we talked about I think think especially on the last one, we talked about, you know, submitting routes and events and what you guys are looking for. But I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about trying to tell the story of a route. You talked a little bit about, you know, highlighting these little communities, but you know, how do you how do you approach telling the story of a route? I think um that's a good question. That's a tricky one. But Oh, I didn't mean to no, trick it's not you. Tricky. It's um interesting. I know what you're saying. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I think the best thing that you can do is to try to not put it through like any sort of lens. So just kind of like show it how it is. Like, obviously when I'm, when I'm documenting these routes, I'm going to like highlight the best aspects of them. Cause I'm not going to post photos of like all the just logging clear cuts or like the giant 15 foot wide logging trucks whizzing down these roads that like you have to get off into the ditch so they don't run you over. Um, <laughs> but you also have to mention that stuff. So like, I never, I, I try to like not hide the fact that there's logging and just like for this route and the route right up, like I'm, you have to, I have to make note of the fact that there's logging trucks and like, you can't listen to music while you're out riding this route in the corner and like you have to be out of the way. Even the animal, like the aspect of like wildlife on the route, like, oh, you can like 
like, I'm going to talk about how you can look at whales and like, see like dolphins, Pacific, what is it? Pacific white sided dolphins, like jumping around in like pods of a hundred. Like it was unbelievable, but there's also the greatest concentration of cougars in North America on Vancouver Island. So like, <laughs> wow. also don't want to be too, uh, <laughs> too struck by the views. Cause like you got to pay attention. <laughs> There's there's black bears everywhere. I think we saw 10 black bears. There's grizzlies now that are swimming over from the islands and mating with the black bears to create hybrid killer monster bears. <laughs> Whoa. They're coming to take us over. I think you just have to like kind of lay it all out there. I don't like to share all of it because I think that's part of the beauty of bikepacking is experiencing like some things are just like a total surprise. I would hate to provide enough information where someone rides the route and they're like, oh yeah, cool. That's exactly what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. I think especially for a route like this, as a counter argument to that though, I do think that there's a space for like shorter route, like, you know, my Sam Houston one that we did together. I want there to be also routes that have a lot of information for entries into bikepacking, making it easy. And then, you know, you kind of work your way up to there. But certainly on a route like yours where, you know, you, you're you seeking that adventure, you know, you want a little bit of the unknown. You That's know? a very good point. Yeah, I think, yeah, the other side of it is it routes that have almost all of the information because then those are those are perfect for like families, new, new cyclists, new bikepackers um, that really just like, yeah, they want to follow the line. They want to like get to camp and like know where they're getting breakfast the next day, um, which is totally fine. Yeah. Like I love, I love, uh, I love that as well. Sometimes it's so nice to be like, oh, this is, this is what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you have kids. I mean, I can definitely relate to bikepacking with kids and um, we actually, I want to do this fall. I want to do a, um, a, a family bikepacking trip and you have to bring a kid. No one like it's families only. It's gonna be a shit show, but it's gonna be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's a We're, good idea. Yeah, yeah. I wanna it's only seven miles there and back, but it'll be perfect for like a little a little family trip, you know. But yeah, I mean I that's that's the thing is it's great to have and and also, man, it speaks to the differences in our lifestyle. I mean, you're uh you know, you don't have kids. You're, you're doing this also partly as part of your job. Um, and like, I am, I'm much more limited, like taking 13 days off from being a father. That's, that's not an option, <laughs> you know? So, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it, it just speaks to like, you know, this is what I'm doing because this is what I can do, you know? Yeah, no, I definitely hear you. That's all I can do. Miles. All you can do. But one day, one, one day, <laughs> One day I'll be able to come up there and play on the big boy uh, routes with you. <laughs> that's some uh, that's some really good info though about the route. I mean, all those things. I think it's important to uh, you know not hide what it is. Uh, you know, you don't especially like if there's cougars and stuff. That's that's very good information. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm picturing. Jesus Christ. <laughs> look, at the, look at the beautiful whales. Aren't they? Oh. We, didn't, we didn't see any, thankfully. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, any, like what else, is there anything else uh, that you would want to tell anybody who is thinking about going to ride this route um, that we didn't cover already? Um, I don't think so. Um, check out, yeah, check out the full route guide on bikepacking.com. Assuming that by this point it's live on the website, there's going to be a bunch of follow-up articles that I'll be doing on the website, like my rig. So I'm going to do, do a full breakdown of my rig and my pack list. So like people know exactly what I brought. And I'll probably do a little story as well because there's some interesting stories to come from this. And uh, there'll be more, there'll be more coverages for sure. Um, you can also like feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Um, it's not one good thing to mention is that like this wouldn't be a very fun winter route. Although you could ride some of it, there's going to be snow at higher eleva- elevation, and uh, it's really like people are going to ride this in the springtime. So like probably May would be like when you want to ride it. So for anyone like in British Columbia or Canada or nearby that is like, Oh, maybe I want to ride this. Like probably May is your, is your best bet. So as of now you're, it's already uh, getting into y'all's fall too, too deep into fall. Yeah. It's getting, it's like, you could do it. Um, You could still do it now, but it's going to be so wet up there. Like it's already this, the, just the weather, although it's going to change the weather like this week is just like all rain and it rains a lot here in the winter. It doesn't snow much, but it pours. So how does that impact uh, your personal riding? Do you, yeah. How do you shift into the different seasons of riding? Um, yeah, it's tricky. And because this is that, well, last winter was my first winter on the coast, like, well, on the sunshine coast, which is not sunny in the winter. And (laughs) The weather changes a lot though. So it's like, it'll rain all morning, but like usually in the afternoon, it kind of blows over because we're like right on the water, right? So you just have to be like flexible and like sometimes I'll just like wait to ride and you have to have a good rain jacket. (laughs) (laughs) But to be honest, that's all. (laughs) To be honest, I'm just super excited to like, if I'm excited for travel to be a little bit more appropriate because and allowed because then I'll, um, I'll go somewhere warmer at some point for like a trip or, um, plan something out. So I was talking with, uh, talking with Lucas this morning about that actually. About what? Going somewhere hot. (laughs) Oh, really? Uh, huh. I guess you can't say yet. Well, it's not, it's, there's probably nothing to talk about. Well, yet, there's, but, and uh, it's just hard because, like, I can't even plan anything right now because I have no idea, like, what travel restrictions are going to be in place, but like everybody. So who knows? I can't imagine that y'all haven't been scheming of where you want to go once the border is finally open. Do you have like a, a, a top 10, not maybe not top 10, that's too many, but you got some things on your radar that you really want to go, go and see or do? First of all, I'd love to get back down to Texas and ride around with you because our visit was too short. I'll even come up and meet you somewhere for sure, too. Yeah, heck yeah. Well, maybe we should meet in like Montana or something then because we did Montana shortly. I have a uh, five-day window. Like with my new schedule that I worked out, I essentially have a five-day window in between kids. And that's like my max adventure time. And that's when I go and do my podcasts and my bikepacking trips. So I can give you like five days or maybe four with driving. Cool. But, we should yeah. plan something. Maybe in the winter, because I would love to go somewhere warmer at some point. If Yeah, if I'm allowed to. Keep me in mind. Where else? Yeah. Um, we want to go to like uh, overseas to like Europe. Go hang out with Lucas in Berlin and then... 
we were tossing around the, some ideas today of doing something, doing something weird out of there. There's a lot of um, events over there, like bike events and also like meetups that would be really fun to run, ride some of those routes and like publish them and get them onto the website. Cause a lot of them are like super well executed routes that just like don't necessarily have like photography or like on the ground coverage yet for like actual an actual route guide. So yeah, I'll probably, yeah, if it allows it, I'll probably be out there next year at some point, um, which would be super exciting. That's the place you were talking about that's warmer. Well, maybe, or maybe even like maybe Mexico, maybe the U S I don't know. Wow. You don't care. You go anywhere where warm. As long as it's not here. <laughs> Man, I've obviously never lived in those conditions and I, I can't imagine it's got to be pretty rough. I'd be wanting to get out too. Yeah, it's a deep cold. It's like not, a, well, it's funny because it's not that cold. Like it's rarely goes below freezing, but it's gets so wet all day long and you start to get so shivery. I long for hot showers all day long. What about like just uh, lack of vitamin D because it's, is it always like cl- kind of cloudy? Yeah, we, so we take vitamin D and, um, and like I have slippers now and stuff cause I'm an old man. So <laughs> I never take my slippers off. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's, let's close it out, man. Are you ready to close out your show? I don't remember what the official closing statement is. Oh, we don't have an official closing statement. Let's just, uh, let's review our episode. How, how do you think that one went? Pretty good. I feel like, I feel like people learned a lot about this new route. I hope they learned just the right amount of information. I like doing a podcast about routes so that people, you know, it's one thing to read it, but I don't know, just like to talk to the person that is the expert, be like, you know, what, what do you expect? What are you excited about? What did you like? What did you pack? You know? So I don't know. I thought that was good. Yeah, no, I agree. I think those are super important. Yeah. It's nice to like hear it like from someone's voice as well. Cause like root guides are kind of like inherently sort of like official sounding. Like they're like, ride 200 kilometers like find a place to sleep i don't know it seems like it's all like because we're getting we're trying to get all the information or a lot of information out in one place so it has to be like kind of there's not a lot of room for fluff where we're very we're very fluffy here on the podcast (laughs) well the good thing y'all do is uh obviously capture the routes on picture really well so you provide the information that it's, I actually like the way y'all do it a lot because it's so clear, you know, at the bottom is all the need to knows and all like the important facts. And then you have the pictures that get you psyched on it. Um, but yeah, I like, I like the way y'all do it. Thanks. <laughs> One thing I've always wanted to uh, do is start getting guests. I always forget to do this, but if I would get every guest to say, now go ride your damn bike, then I'd have like a whole catalog of like a bunch of people saying it. Yeah. So no matter what, you definitely have to say that. So I don't know, Miles, you wanted to fucking close it out. So however you want to do it, it's your, it's your show. Now go ride your damn bike. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that, is that good? Do I need to redo it? Yeah, try again. Go ride your damn bike. <laughs>
the route is live over at bikepacking.com. It's called the Tree to Sea Loop by Miles Arbor. Go check it out. Looks pretty sweet. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. You rode faster than ever before. Was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless. Your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself just a few more miles. Bikes for death. Bikes for death.